Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Growing up in South Florida, I spent a lot of time at the beach. And one of the things that you learn as a kid in South Florida at the beach is how to handle rip currents. And what's a rip current? Well, that's when the waves come in, it's when uh, water channels together in a real concentrated area and then heads back out to sea. And if you get caught in a rip current, it's not a good thing. And you get, you get swept out to sea. And I, I will always remember, and I can hear it even now, my parents telling me what to do if I got caught in a rip current. And they would say, Keith, if you get caught in a rip current, don't swim to shore. And I, as a kid, I thought that's the worst possible advice I think I could ever hear. What do you mean don't swim to shore? Of course I'm gonna swim to shore, otherwise I'll drown. Well, it's actually really sound advice, right? You don't swim to shore. They'd say you swim parallel to shore. And then once you're out of the rip current, you swim to shore because if you try to fight it, eventually you end up getting tired, weary, and you end up drowning. But if I were to get caught in a rip current, there would be this tension, right? My natural instinct and your natural instinct as you're floating away is to swim back to shore. But I'd have to trust the counsel of my parents to say, I'm not gonna do what naturally I would be drawn to do. I'm gonna swim parallel to shore. There's a lot of parallels between that and, and what we face when we encounter difficult circumstances, when we encounter the pressures of life in a broken world. When you face difficulty, and this is universal across every person here, that when you face difficulty, you will do something to either get out of that difficulty, to minimize it, to, to, to experience some sort of comfort, to mitigate it, that, that you will naturally do something and yet there's this tension of what naturally you would want to do, which is when, when you're facing difficulty or you're in the midst of it, it's very easy to be in just grasping, right? To trust in something, some person, something, to get me out of this versus trusting in God to handle the situation. There's a temptation there. It's exactly what David, who wrote Psalm 16, is facing here in Psalm 16 is that he is facing pressure. He's facing some sort of difficulty that is mounting pressure on him and on his relationship with God and his trust in God. And the pressure is pushing on that trust and tempting him 
to find relief somewhere else, to trust something or to trust someone in the midst of this difficulty. You say, what was David facing? Well, we don't know for sure, but there's a couple verses that give us a clue. Verse four, when David talks about running to other gods, could it be that David was facing some sort of difficulty, some sort of pressure, and he was facing the temptation to run away from God and to something else, what people around him were running to for comfort or relief. Or maybe it's verse 10 where, where David talks about not being abandoned or not seeing corruption. Maybe there was a sickness involved or a disease or something that, that had him fearing death and needing some sort of comfort in the fear of death, him again being tempted to run away from God and run to something else to find comfort or to find relief. Where are you this morning? What are you facing that is putting pressure on your trust in God? Or if you're not in Christ and you're just investigating Christianity and you're trying to figure out who God is, what is in your life right now? What difficulty, what hardship, what trial, what is putting pressure on you to where you're, you're grasping for something to provide relief, to provide comfort? If that's where you're at and you've identified what that is, Psalm 16 is a beautiful, beautiful passage for the heart because it answers the question, why is God worthy of your trust in the face of difficulty? Why is God worthy of your trust such that you don't have to run anywhere else? First, it's because he's good, that God is good. Look at verse two. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Now, what does he mean? Verse four explains. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. In the face of difficulty, there is this incredible temptation to search for good through idolatry or through running after other gods. We get a picture here of what idolatry looked like or what religion looked like in the ancient Near East and how it operated. And basically what you would do is you would come, if you were facing some sort of difficulty, you would come to a God and you would pour out a drink offering or a blood offering. And that blood may have been from an animal you sacrificed, in some cases from a child, because there were religions in the day that embraced and promoted child sacrifice. And the idea was that if you came before this God and poured this blood out, that somehow that would secure the blessing of that God to give you what you wanted. So for example, in a very agricultural setting, if there was a drought and your crops were dying, you would bring a blood offering to the rain God and you would pour it out before the rain God to say, I am asking for and purchasing your blessing to pour out rain on my crops. Or if you were struggling with intimacy in your marriage, uh, you would bring a, a blood offering to the God of sexuality, pour it out, 
asking for, purchasing the blessing of, spicing up and bringing intimacy to your marriage. That's how it would work. Now, it's no different than today. Although modern idolatry in Western culture looks different. If your career is not going how you want it to go, you may not bring a literal blood offering and pour it out before the God of success, but you will put in a lot of hours at work, crazy hours at work, and sacrifice your family on the altar of the God of success. Or if you generally are unhappy and not content with life, you may not bring a blood offering before the God of comfort and pour it out, but you will spend inordinate amounts of money and time on, on alcohol or entertainment or drugs in an attempt to purchase some degree of relief or some degree of happiness. What's the result of this? When you run after other gods to find whatever you're looking for, relief, protection, provision, whatever it may be, what's the result? Look at verse four again. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. That word there, run, or to run after, means to acquire by paying a purchase price. It means to acquire by paying a purchase price. So if you put a lot of hours, crazy hours in at work, you may actually experience some success that you're looking for but it'll cost you your marriage. It'll cost you your family. That's the purchase price for that success. Or you may actually find temporarily some degree of relief and comfort and pleasure, right? In, by drinking or by abusing drugs. But in doing so, you may lose your family. You may lose your job. You may lose your health. You may lose your credit or some variation of all of that. Again, the purchase price is your health or your family or your job. The point is this, that when you run after other gods, there is a purchase price to get what you want. It costs you something. And that cost is, as verse four says, sorrow and pain. And a lot of you have experienced that. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the polar opposite of that form of religion. The gospel's the complete opposite. God does not require you to pour out a sacrificial blood offering to win him over. The God of the Bible brings a blood offering of his own. The blood of his own son, Jesus Christ, to win you over. That's the message of the gospel. And it is completely different than any other world religion that operates by the, by the mantra of pay it off and get this God to bless you. Christianity is completely different. God says, I'm bringing the blood. I'm bringing my son's blood to pay off your sin, to win you over, to bring you back. That's why David can say in verse two, I have no good apart from you 
Because David understood, and granted he was looking forward, we'll see it here in a spirit of prophecy to the coming of Christ, but David understood that God was good. And we see it now this side of the cross, that God is so good that he would give up his own blood, his own son, to win you back and to redeem you. And that prompts verses five and six. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. The lines that are spoken of here were the cords by which land was allocated out, right? So lines that would divide up property. Now, there's two observations from verses five and six that are incredibly important. Number one, David says, you hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Remember the temptation that David's facing. We don't know exactly what the the situation is, but he's facing this temptation, right, to, to turn from God, to stop trusting God, and to secure some other different lot. Some other different lot lines. Have you ever done that? Have you ever looked over at your neighbor's, metaphorically speaking, looked at your neighbor's lot lines and said, boy, those look so sweet? Or a friend, and you look at their lot lines and you say, boy, that looks so sweet. This becomes a tremendous problem in the social media age. Because the lot lines that are put forward on social media are oftentimes not real. But you look at them and you say, I wish I had that life. How do I get that life? How do I get those lot lines? The one who is supremely, perfectly, and perpetually good holds your lot. You know what that means? that whatever you find your lot to be today is not an accident. It's not a mistake. It's not punishment. It is a lot that is held by a good and generous God. And when you understand that, and when you believe that, then you can say with utmost confidence, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Now, there's a second observation of verses five and six that will round this out. Because you still may say, how in the world can I say that the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places? You have no idea what I'm going through. It's not pleasant. True. Pain is real. Second observation. When Israel came into the promised land, land was divvied out. Land was allocated out. Lot lines were drawn for the different tribes of Israel. And every tribe except for one got land. But there was a tribe, it was the tribe of Levi. And these were the priests in Israel. They got an inheritance, but it wasn't land. It wasn't physical lines of land. God was their inheritance. Listen to how their inheritance is described in Numbers chapter 18, verse 20. And the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion. 
and your inheritance among the people of Israel. The Levites didn't get land. Their inheritance was God himself. And 1 Peter 2.9 says that the church of Jesus Christ, those that have trusted Christ, are a royal priesthood, which means as a kingdom of priests that our inheritance is God himself, Christ himself, period. And that is so important to hear in a culture where we talk about inheritance all the time. What will I inherit when my parents pass away? What will I inherit when this family passes? What is my inheritance? David makes it clear here. And through the New Testament lens and through the cross that our inheritance is Jesus Christ himself. Ask yourself this question. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you have ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you've ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? Christ is our inheritance. God is so good that he would give us his son, pour out his blood on our behalf. God is worthy of your trust because he's good. And out of his goodness, he gave you his son, Jesus Christ, to be enjoyed forever. Second, why is God worthy of your trust in the face of difficulty? Second, he's present. God is present. Look at verse seven. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. Now, the beginning of verse eight is actually just restates the end of verse seven. I have set the Lord always or continually before me. What this means is that God is always continually instructing, counseling your heart at the innermost of your being through the Holy Spirit. And that word instruct, it means to chastise, it means to admonish, it means to discipline. You say, well, what's, wait a minute, what's the nature of this instruction? What's the nature of this counsel? What's the nature of this discipline? Well, remember what David's facing here, right? The temptation to, to, to not trust God, but to trust someone else or something else. The work that God's doing, the primary work that God is doing in your heart, continually around the clock is that when you are faced with difficulty, when you're faced with the pressure of life and you're ready to snap and you're ready to walk off the ranch, God, by his Holy Spirit, is working around the clock to keep you faithful to Jesus Christ. If you're here and you're in Christ and you have trusted Christ, the only reason that you are still in Christ is because of the work of the Holy Spirit, period. If God is doing, I'll just give it to you this, in this picture. So I want, you to, I want you to capture this. If God is doing a thousand things in your life right now, you're maybe only aware of four or five of those things that he's doing. That he is working all the time in your life and so profoundly to keep you attached to Jesus Christ that that work goes on that you're even unaware of. Much of it that you're unaware of. 
because the Holy Spirit is instructing you and counseling you. About a year ago, a, a Russian woman was vacationing off the coast of, or on the coast of Crete. And she was at the beach one day. She was out in the water on a raft. Apparently, she fell asleep and was swept out, really strong rip current, was swept out to sea. 21 hours later, the Coast Guard found her. 21 hours, seven miles offshore. Now, that's a rip current. For however long she was asleep, who knows? For however long she was asleep, she was unaware of this powerful current that was moving her along. The Holy Spirit is moving you along, is moving you closer to Jesus Christ even when you're unaware of it. That's how powerful the work of the Spirit is. And the Spirit is working, instructing you, counseling you at night, during the day, during your sleep, 24-7. The Spirit is counseling you in every situation, every circumstance, every pressure, every trial, every blessing, the Spirit is at work. And just like that woman, at some, at some point, she woke up on her raft. Who knows when? But when she woke up, she wasn't 10 feet offshore floating, right? You can look back on your life. Maybe it's five years ago. Maybe it's seven years ago. You look back and you go, wow, I'm a different person today than I was five to seven years ago. Oh, wow, I've done a really good job over the last five to seven years. No. The Holy Spirit has been working for five to seven years to change you, transform you around the clock. God is present, very present. He's counseling. He's instructing by his spirit. He's keeping you attached to Christ. In verse eight, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. That place of the right hand, that's a place of support. Because he's at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. How do we understand verse eight? The Lord is near and the Lord is present, whether you acknowledge that or not. So you say, well, what does it mean when David says, I have set the Lord always before me? To set God before you is nothing else than to keep all of your senses bound and captive to the truth that he is near and present and counseling you. That's what it means to set the Lord before you. All my senses bound and captive to that truth that the Holy Spirit is working to instruct me and to counsel me and to change me and to keep me united to Jesus Christ. That gets difficult when life gets hard. That gets difficult when you face difficulty and trial and circumstances that you're not wanting. It's very easy to say, is God really at my right hand? Is he really near? Is he really at work in this season where I feel like I'm going backwards? And the answer is yes, God is present. And in Christ and by his Holy Spirit, he is doing a work of transformation in you, whether you can see it or not. That's the sweet promise that God is present. And that's why he's worthy of your trust. In the face of difficulty, where everything you see is pointing in a different direction. 
So why is God worthy of your trust in the face of difficulty? First, because he's good. Second, because he's present. And finally, because he's faithful. Look at verses nine and 10. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. What's happening here? Well, after David worships or David worships and praises God in response to God's goodness and God's presence that he's counseling, that he's instructing, right? After those those two sweet truths of why God's worthy of your trust, David erupts into, my heart is glad. Worship and praise. But then we get to the phrase, my flesh also dwells secure. And then he launches into verse 10 with a four, I will not be abandoned. That four is like a because. In other words, he says, my flesh will also dwell secure. And here's the reason why. So David, after laying out that God is good, God is present, he gives another reason that's worthy, of, that God's worthy of your trust. You say, why? Isn't it enough? Isn't it enough that God's good? Isn't it enough that he's present? That's, that's good. And that's really sweet. Isn't that enough? Why does David go on to say, for my flesh dwells secure? And oh, oh, by the way, let me give you another reason. Here's why. God's goodness and God's presence is sweet. And those are reasons why God is worthy of your trust. But it leaves an unanswered question. And the question is, where does all this end? This difficulty that I'm in, this season that I'm in, God is good, God is present, that is sweet, but is this ever gonna end? Am I ever gonna get to a place where I'm not running after other gods and tempted to trust something or someone else than God? Am I ever gonna get to a season where this difficulty is over? The answer is yes. And that's what David is getting at here in verse 10. Verse 10 is quoted several times in the New Testament in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 13. Listen to how Peter in Acts chapter 2 quotes verse 10 out of Psalm 16 in the context that he gives. Acts chapter 2, verses 25 to 31. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have known to me, made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. There is the good chunk of Psalm 16 that, that Peter quotes in Acts 2. Now listen to what he says. Here's his commentary on it. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. That's another way of saying David saw corruption. His body saw corruption. He was put in the grave. His body decayed just like yours will and mine will. That when we are put in the grave, our bodies will decay. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, 
He foresaw, David foresaw, and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he, the Christ, was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So Peter gives interpretation of Psalm 1610. He says this, David's body saw corruption. Your body will see corruption when you go in the grave. But the body of Jesus Christ did not see corruption. It did not decay. And he rose from the dead after three days in a glorified body that would no longer be susceptible to corruption or sin or decay. And the scriptures speak of Christ's resurrection as the firstborn among many brothers, first fruits. And what that means is that Jesus Christ is the pattern for all of those who trust in him. And that means that cancer is not the end of your story. Praise God. That means that your chronic pain is not the end of your story. That means that disease or sickness is not the end of your story. That means that your mental health issues are not the end of your story. That means that your propensity to run after other gods, we sang about it, we're prone to wander. That means your proneness to wander is not the end of your story. That the end of your story, if you're in Jesus Christ, is a body like his, a glorified body that cannot die, that cannot be susceptible to sickness and disease, that cannot sin, that that is the end of your story. And so whatever you're in right now, whatever you're in the midst of, whatever difficulty, right, the resurrection of Christ is the end of your story, ultimately. I was watching a show, it's a while back, I haven't watched it in a while, it's called SOS, How to Survive, I think it's on Weather Channel, if I'm remembering correctly. But it's this show about people that get lost in the wilderness. And I think his name's Creek Stewart. He's amazing, right? He'll get you out of anything, you know, with an egg yolk or whatever. It's kind of like MacGyver. And so he shows you, if you get caught in this situation, how you get out, right? And this one episode had uh, this young couple with a young child, and they're, they're, they're riding in the back roads of the Rocky Mountains, and they're great. They've got the GPS in their car. Everything's great. Got GPS. We, we know where to go. We know where to turn. We know where to get out. Everything's good. There's a blizzard coming, but we're good. It's a little ways off. And then suddenly their GPS goes out. They lost signal. And they kept going. And they kept trying to make turns to get out. And they got deeper and deeper into the Rocky Mountains, ended up on a dirt road, car in the ditch, stuck, blizzard coming with like a six-year-old kid in the car with them. And I remember watching the show and, you know, I'm, I, you kind of get wrapped up in it and there's just this pit in my stomach. Like if I'm in this situation with my kids, I, I mean, you talk about the fear. You talk about the insecurity. You talk about the just despair of are we, are we going to get out of this situation? Are we going to make it out alive? I have no idea where to go. I have no direction. I am literally and utterly lost. That's the kind of fear and that's the kind of despair that can set in when you get into a season of difficulty and a season of hardship. You can get to the point where you are absolutely overwhelmed with fear and despair 
I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. I'm lost. And that's why in this Psalm 16, God is good, God is present, yes, but God is faithful. And his faithfulness is shown in the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, so that whatever situation you find yourself in, if you've placed your trust in Christ, you know the end of the story. You know this season will not go on forever. It may be unbearably long, but I know where this ends because I know that Jesus is a pattern for me and that his glorified body is the end of my story that I too will receive a glorified body where I no longer suffer this disease or sickness or this proneness to wander and run after other gods and experience the pain and the sorrow that comes with that. Life's hard in this world. It's really hard. God gives us the resurrected Jesus to eliminate those insecurities and to eliminate that fear. And the beauty about the resurrection is this, that when you find yourself in the midst of difficulty, God doesn't just tell you it's gonna be okay. He doesn't just tell you it's gonna be okay. He shows you it's gonna be okay. You say, what, what do you mean? When Jesus rose from the dead, he did not raise from the dead and immediately ascend into heaven so that nobody could see him. No, he spent 40 days walking around the earth showing himself to people. You say, why? Because he was showing everyone his glorified body, a body that wouldn't ever see corruption again. He was showing you the end. He was showing the disciples and those he saw the end of their story. Not just God telling you it's gonna be okay, but God shows it to you. We by witness, by witness of the apostles and the prophets have seen the resurrected Christ. No, not physically with our eyes, but that's where faith comes in. They saw Jesus physically. We have accounts of it. To say here is the end of the story, a body that will never die for eternity. No more wandering no more idolatry. You won't be able to sin. You won't be able to run after something other than God. That's the end. God showed it to them. They wrote it down for us so that we too could have absolute security that the end of our story is a glorified body in the new heavens and new earth for eternity. And that has impact now. Psalm 16 ends in an appropriate place. In your presence, there is fullness of joy, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There's an implicit invitation here at the end of Psalm 16. There's an implicit invitation to a joy-filled party with the Trinity. In your presence, that refers to God the Father. At your right hand, who's at the right hand of God the Father? Jesus Christ. Not explicit, but implicit up in verse Seven is the Holy Spirit who is constantly and continually giving you counsel and instruction. You've got the Trinity involved here in this psalm, the Godhead. And at the end, it's, it's basically an invitation. Hey, come enjoy eternal pleasure with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The, the parable of the prodigal son, we see a picture of this where the Father gets his youngest son back who was lost. 
And his youngest son comes back, kind of tail tucked between the legs, waiting for some sort of, you know, harsh speech about you shouldn't have done that, you shouldn't run away, you shouldn't have taken all my inheritance, you shouldn't have done this. And he comes back, and what's the father do? He throws a party. And the youngest son is swept up into this party. And the older son is out in the field. And the older son is standing there, it says, and he's looking in. He won't go in. He's looking at the house, and he, and he, and he can hear the music and the dancing. We don't know what happened with the older son, but I think some of you understand what it's like to stand on the outside and to hear this psalm and to hear this invitation at the end and say, why don't I walk into this party? Why don't I walk into this Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that are full of joy and full of pleasure forevermore? They must have some idea of how this mess we're in is gonna end, and they do, because the Son came down and rescued us and is now raised and has a glorified body. God says, would you come? Would you trust my son, Jesus Christ? Don't come with some sort of blood offering of penance saying if I pour enough out, he'll accept me. That's not how it works. That's not how the gospel works. Now the gospel says God poured out his blood for you. He's not asking for your blood. He poured out his blood for your sin and then opens his arms up in Jesus Christ and says, come. Come be a part of this joy-filled, pleasure-filled party for eternity and it will change your life now. And when you place your trust in God in the, in the face of difficulty, it will change the way that you walk through that difficulty because there's a way to walk through it with joy that is only a result of you uniting yourself to the Godhead. And the joy that you have, it doesn't come from you. This isn't like, this is not the, hey, your life is painful right now. You just need to buck up and just feel like it's okay and show some joy. That's not what we're talking about. No, you come to this Godhead with your pain. You come to him with the situation. You come to him with the difficulty. And then he sweeps you into his joy. He sweeps you into his pleasure. And he gives you counsel. And he reminds you of his goodness. And he reminds you of his faithfulness. That he will bring what he started in you to completion one day. And that completion is a glorified body in the presence of the king that can never die, can never sin, can never wander ever again. That's good news. Amen? Father, what a beautiful psalm this is. Every person in this room, every person is facing some difficulty. Every person in this room, to some degree, is looking at their neighbor's lot lines and going, wow, I wish I had that life. Wow, they seem to have it all together. I wish I was had that lot line. And yet you remind us, Father, in this psalm that you hold our lot and that whatever difficulty we're facing is not an accident. It's not punishment. It's not a mistake. And we know that because you are good, period. And what you give us flows out of your goodness with, with, a, with a picture that we can't fully access of what you're doing in constantly counseling and instructing us 
through the difficulty, bringing us and moving us along by the power of your Holy Spirit, oftentimes that we're unaware of, to this, this reality and this end of being conformed in the image of Jesus. And we experience it in part right now. But one day, Father, when we receive our new bodies, it will come in full that we will have a body like Jesus and we will live for eternity. Father, I pray for those that are here that maybe are facing a difficulty and, and maybe feel a little bit like that family out in the Rocky Mountains with no direction, with, with, with no idea of where to go, feeling utter despair. Some here, Father, have, have, have felt, verse four, they've run after other gods and, and they, they feel the sorrow and they feel the pain and, and they've thrown their hands up, said, I'm lost. Oh, Father, by your Holy Spirit, would you convince them of your goodness and your presence and your faithfulness in Christ and pray that you would draw them to the place of bowing the knee and surrendering and placing trust in Jesus. And in doing so, finding the fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. And we pray this all in your son's name and for his sake. Amen.